Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Duncan Lamont and I'm pleased to be joined today by Philippe Lespinard. Hi. Now, fixed income markets were given a bit of a shock last week when the overnight repo rates in the US spiked, causing the Fed to step in and inject liquidity to bring things back under control. It hit a lot of headlines, but actually I'm sure it's something a lot of our clients don't really understand properly. So it's going to be something I'd like to spend a good chunk of today's podcast on, and I'm sure our listeners will find it useful to hear Philippe talk us through what exactly happens and whether this is something we need to be worried about. But before that, a brief sum up on goings on in the wider world. So equities are still riding high. US only slightly off its year-to-date peak. European equities at a 2019 high. Both up over 20% this year. Japanese equities had a storm in September, up 7% this month alone, but earlier lacklustre performance means they're only up about 11% year-to-date. Emerging markets, relatively poor performer, but even still, here you're still getting over 8% this year in dollar terms. One of the more interesting moves has been the much-awaited outperformance of value stocks over growth, especially noticeable in Europe, where the MSCI Value Index has returned 6.2%, this month, compared with only 1.7% from growth. In the US, the difference has been smaller, only 3.7% for value compared with 1.7% for growth, but still an early indication that things may be starting to turn. Or perhaps a false dawn, who knows yet. After rebounding from the lows this month, government bond yields have been falling back once again. US 10 years only about 175 down from 1.9% about a week ago, but still well above the 146 it fell to earlier on. In the UK, you've only got 55 basis points, Japan minus 22 and Germany minus 52. Yield starvation still continues. We also had oil prices falling back slightly after the fireworks of the previous week. Now, before we get on to discussing things with Philippe, there's two other noteworthy events I wanted to mention. First, we had the sad demise of Thomas Cook, the world's oldest tour operator. Left an estimated 150,000 tourists stranded across the globe. And there is a financial impact here as well as the clear human cost. The company's bonds now trading a few pence in the pound. So I'm sure our listeners will be keen to understand how much exposure we have to this as well. So I'm also going to be asking Philippe a few questions around that. And finally, hot off the press, literally in the last half hour or so, the UK's Supreme Court has today ruled that UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson's five-week prorogation of Parliament, which is an archaic word meaning shutdown of Parliament, was unlawful, saying that it was against the law. This is, this is unprecedented. The UK press is going crazy. Financial Times webpage on the subject keeps crashing. Um, officially, the statement says the decision to advise Her Majesty, it's the Queen, to prorogue Parliament was unlawful because it had the effect of frustrating or preventing the ability of Parliament to carry out its constitutional functions without reasonable justification. This is really important news for the UK. Um, Parliament likely to be recalled much sooner than had previously been expected, and there's going to be some clear fallout from this across the political spectrum. So, now, on to discussing things with Philippe, which I'm sure is everyone, what everyone really wants to hear from today. Starting with the repo shock, can you just start with a bit of background for everybody on what the repo market is used for, who are the main participants on and so on, just before we actually dive into what happened last week? Okay, so repo means repurchase. Uh, it's essentially a repurchase agreement, um, meaning that if you have securities, good quality securities, typically treasuries in the US or agency bonds, you can actually lend them for a day in return for cash. 
and the next day the transaction unwinds and you get your your bonds back and uh, and the, of course the person who had the cash gets the cash back and so wh- why would somebody want to engage in these types of transactions um, so financial institutions are the main players uh, and uh, what happens is they have very large portfolios of securities um, and when they need liquidity they can then exchange those securities for liquidity Typically, it's an overnight loan, so it just as, as the term implies, it unwinds the next day. You can do term repos, which is you lend those securities for several days, a few days, a week, a month, and you keep the liquidity for that period of time. It's a well-known uh, tool for managing your balance sheet and your liquidity needs. And let's not forget, those financial institutions hold liquidity on behalf of their clients. So corporations, individuals, uh, investment funds, uh, the, the whole financial community has a deposit account. And, uh, and when they draw on those deposits, if the bank needs to generate that cash and give it to them, um, and they ha- if there's a high demand for cash, then the bank will then have to lend the securities that are on its books. Okay, That's so what the repo market is used for. So, so it's mainly a liquidity management tool as opposed to something that is used to kind of try to generate return or to raise funds to invest in anything particular? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you can use repos as a way to leverage a portfolio. That's the case of some investment funds. Uh, hedge funds do that. They, they can actually repo securities again for a very long term to leverage their portfolio. But the major use is really meant uh, the financial system exchanging good quality collateral for, for cash. Okay. And... and how big is this market? Is is this something that is just a kind of um, a small part of the overall f- um, system, or actually is it something that um, is much more prevalent? It's very prevalent. It is an enormous market. Uh, on a given day, several hundred billion uh, will change hands overnight. Okay. Uh, it is essentially think of it as the oil that greases the financial markets. You know, if somebody is taking a security. Uh, on delivery, but that doesn't have the cash to can repo it just to ease their cash need for a day or so. So, it, it's used by literally every financial player um, uh, in order to uh, to make sure to manage their liquidity needs in the very short term. Okay, so it's clearly an, it's an important market. And then, what happened last week then? So the uh, last week was uh, was the, the culmination of, uh, of of a very strong demand for cash, which has been growing on trend. Um, and it's it's happening to coincide with the the Federal Reserve's uh, shrinking balance sheet because of course they're not uh, doing quantitative easing anymore. They're actually doing the opposite, quantitative tightening, meaning they're letting go of the securities that are on their on their balance sheet. When they mature, they don't replace them, and so that's absorbing uh, reserves. Um, the demand for cash is growing for many many reasons. Uh, there there's a lot of uncertainty, um, certainly on the on the part of commercial players and and foreign financial institutions about uh, the ability of the U.S. Uh, Treasury particularly to use sanctions as they do more and more. Um, and so you could see, for example, that's one, uh, one thing that is uh, one factor that's driving uh, foreign corporations and foreign banks to increase their demand of, of, of dollars, of cash dollars, just because they're not quite sure that if they, the day they need them, they might actually have access to them. So, so it's like a precautionary move now then just because things when you actually need that cash, it might not be available. Yeah, it's very much precautionary, and it's largely driven by the more aggressive regime. Uh, you know, we, we call it the weaponization of the dollar, uh, mm-hmm. which is ultimately the U.S. government using uh, access to their currency as a way for you know enforcing laws or deterring play- people from from breaching those laws or essentially doing whatever they feel they should be doing. And that's a very general factor. So it's affecting pe- people in the Gulf, it's affecting people in Asia, it's affecting uh, European corporations even who might have some dealings with Iran, say, and are not sure that they'll have access to dollar liquidity when they need it. So you could see those balances growing everywhere. So that's more of a that's more of a kind of uh, 
trend or a secular shift as opposed to a particular event that might have occurred last week, for example? Yeah, well, well, the one thing that may have triggered uh, the last week's shock, uh, despite that long-term trend, was, for example, the the bombing of the uh, the Saudi installations. I mean, clearly the Saudis depend on selling oil for their revenues, okay. and uh, and clearly they have very large portfolios of securities. And it may just be, have been that the Saudi government, well, we won't know that, but through their bankers, have basically said, well, you know what, we're not sure whether we'll get those receipts or whatever. You know, we'll have. We, we can't make our deliveries on time. We're going to have to compensate clients. So we're going to need dollars. Um, and they may have very well called on, called on some more additional liquidity from their banks, at which point the banks went to the Federal Reserve, where it all is, and, um, and essentially did a repo. And suddenly the demand for cash just soared. And the, the Federal Reserve had to intervene and on its own balance sheet do the opposite trade, essentially uh, lending cash to people and borrowing those securities from them. And that's the role of the central bank. So when we saw... Um when we saw that, when the the repo rates, what what kind of range of movement did are we talking about here? Because it wasn't just a kind of twenty five basis points move; it was much more substantial than that. It was very big. If you look at the the the, the rate that is used to be called the GC repo rate for general collateral repo rate, that's now called the the uh, secured overnight financing rate. So uh, the acronym is SOFR. S O F R. And, and so far, uh, which is now published and is now the future LIBOR rate, by the way, um, spiked from about 2% to about 5%, um, so about a 3% squeeze. It has, if you look at the SOFR rate, every month's end, it has little spikes um, that tend to be 25 basis point spikes, maybe maybe up to 50. Year-end has this stronger spike because, then, again, the demand for liquidity, for balance sheet cleanup and all of that, uh, that, that stuff that happens around year-end in the financial system. It causes a, a demand for dollars, and when and when the central bank doesn't anticipate the demand uh, entirely, then what happens is ultimately that rate spikes. The demand for cash becomes uh, stronger, and therefore the rate goes up. Okay, we'll come back onto the the importance of SOFR in a second, but I guess in terms of last week as well, one of the other. Um, points that's been made is this might have been around companies having to make um, tax payments as well and then a sudden short-term squeeze on the demand for cash then if you've got the Saudi issue as well against this sec- the backdrop of um, increased kind of secular demand for cash some of those elements could have or perhaps should have been predictable so the trend for more cash has been going on for a while. The tax deadlines were not a surprise, shouldn't have been a surprise to the Federal Reserve. So is is there any concern that the Fed is actually misjudging things? That certainly has been. The, the general commentary is, you know, how could you not know this was coming? Mm. Um, and as you say, tax uh, tax days are, are, are predictable. We know the dates. We may not quite know exactly the amounts. Um, because, of course, uh, you know, the, the Fed doesn't actually see the tax returns, um, uh, not necessarily directly anyway. So um, it could well have been that it misun- they mis- misunderstood this. There was extra factors that we, wouldn't, we won't know until you know, weeks afterwards when it's all, all, the, you know, all comes out. The Fed does publish, by the way, on a regular basis, what they call factors absorbing reserves. So we know what their reserves are used for, by whom, where is the demand, is it foreign, is it domestic. So there will be a, a drains-up analysis uh, done on why they, uh, they missed it and why the rate spiked to 5%. Um, uh, but ultimately, uh, it, just, it just tells you that their forecasting tools aren't as um, they aren't as as uh, sharp as uh, as you'd expect them to be. 
it's also that their framework doesn't have a corridor. I mean, other central banks have a rate at which they top out, right, which they provide liquidity infinitely against good collateral as well. So there is, there is clearly, um, there is clear, there are clearly mechanisms that could be adopted to avoid that spike and manage within a corridor rather than just have a floor and let the ceiling happen. Uh, depending on private demand. Okay, and repo rates have now fallen back to more normal levels. Yep, they're back. They're back where they should be. Does that? I guess two questions. Does that then mean this is something that we can just put down as a one-off and don't have to worry about? And secondly, um, is there any concern that the last time we saw spikes in interbank lending rates was around the financial crisis? Is there any? potential risk that this is actually a warning sign of something bigger rather than just a technical one-off? Okay, there's definitely no warning sign that the sudden demand for cash was caused by a financial institution in being in distress or in trouble or whatever it is. So there is there's certainly no hint of that. Okay, that must, that, that must be so, really reassuring. If we've got clients who are concerned that this is a kind of sign of some liquidity crisis globally, that's that's not what appears to be happening here at all. No, that's definitely uh, that's definitely not the case. Um, your other question, whether there will be other spikes, well, there will be because there's always been, um, again, uncertain times of the year, uh, particularly year-end and, and, and month ends. Uh, the worrying, the worrying thing is that the the sofa rate, this new sofa rate, is is the replacement for LIBOR, yeah. um, and of course, you know, averaging that daily rate and compounding it on a daily basis will become the new LIBOR rate, and so if it's volatile, it means that the, the people who are replacing LIBOR contracts will end up having a base which won't be manipulated like the way LIBOR was or found was found to be, but ultimately it may just be just as unpredictable if it's not managed within a tight corridor. Yeah, and I guess so, if anything that's got payments that would be linked to old LIBOR or SOFA and then you suddenly happen to find your reference rate is 5% on one day rather than 2.5% the day before 2.5% you were expecting that day, that's quite problematic. It is problematic, which is which is why it's such a big issue, right? Um, I mean, you already have some agencies of the U.S. government uh, who have issued daily floating uh, SOFA uh, linked rates. So for that one day that the SOFA rate was above five percent, the the lucky owners of that security accrued interest at five percent. Uh, now it only lasted one day, so. Mm. You know, the- that may not be life-changing, but assume it becomes more volatile and always higher than the floor, then you are actually getting a premium for that volatility um, instead of getting what was what would have been the old effective Fed funds rate, which is pretty, pretty much where the Fed would not like to nail it. And, and how nailed down is SOFR as the reference rate that will be replacing LIBOR? Would this cause anybody to reassess that? Uh, it could, uh, it could. I mean, it's it's officially the the alternative reference rate for LIBOR in the U.S. Um, so uh, I think rowing back from that would be quite difficult. Um, now there are plenty of opinions, including uh, our own analysts, who think that uh, it's unlikely that U.S. dollar LIBOR would completely disappear. Um, it will obviously cease to be this panel, and you know, with this this uh, the way it was set up, which was meant to, which was actually found to not really, really represent transactions, actual transactions. Mm-hmm. So, so far, uh, is actually, the mandate is that you have to find a rate which represents actual transactions. And so far, is definitely actual transactions. So it meets that requirement, uh, but it may not be the requirement of being a better indicator of the where the central bank wants the money rate, the okay. price of money on a daily basis to be. So there's a tension there. Cool. Um, so we've only got, not got that long left, but I want to ask you some quick questions. Thomas Cook? Um, how exposed are we um, in our credit portfolios? We uh, we have a tiny, tiny exposure, less than one million pounds. 
um, across the whole book of business, across the whole book, um, and so. You know, it's it's very unpleasant, obviously, um, but the bonds were marked down at twelve, and they're probably trading around five or six now. So it's essentially, you know, these are securities that are ultimately marked as if this company was not going to survive. So there is no downside exposure to our clients. I mean, only potentially just a few basis, uh, a few basis points really. Okay, that's good. Um, and very quickly, um, any views on the ECB or the Fed? Um, kind of one line. Opinions? I'd say the ECB has probably told us that they're uh, they've done the maximum they could do, and there's they're pretty much tapped out uh, policy-wise. So it is now, you know, fiscal policy that we'll need to to pick up um, if the economy continues to weaken, and particularly if the the industrial sector, as seems to be the case after yesterday's numbers. On the Fed, um, there's a big debate in the Fed. They're not quite sure exactly uh, how quickly they should ease and whether they should continue to ease. I think the recent news will probably convince them they need to continue that easing program. Okay. Thank you very much, Philippe, and thank you very much for everybody joining us today. Um, We've spent quite a bit of time discussing the repo situation, but hopefully that's been useful for everybody. I guess just the, some of the points on that, This there is a backdrop of increased demand for cash, and that is more structural, um, which is putting some more pressure on the repo market. But there are also some um, short-term technical reasons why the repo rate spiked um, from increased demand for cash for tax payments and also potentially events in the in Saudi Arabia with the oil um, issues there. Things have got back to normal. The Fed does have tools at its disposal to um, combat this, but it it is potentially going to be something where there may be more variability still in future. Um, and just to reassure everybody, it does not uh, say that we are entering back into another financial crisis. Um, this can be explained by um, by other more normal factors. And also another point of reassurance on Thomas Cook, that actually we have very little exposure across our credit portfolios. Um, so hopefully that should reassure our clients. With that, thank you very much, Philippe, and thank you very much, everyone, for joining us. Thank you.